All right. We promoted this series on Facebook and on Instagram. Um, We've said that this series is going to be all about shame, what it does to us, and and then what we can do about it, about this thing called shame. I believe that we have shame in our lives all the way to the very, maybe possibly our genetic level. So literally, shame is quite literally a part of my life. One effective way to think about shame is kind of like this. You know, we, we all uh, have, or let me speak personally for a moment. I, I, I have in my life this personal attendant. And this personal attendant, he is there all the time. Uh, he's uh, an attendant who is tuned in to my every thought. He's tuned in to my every desire, every image that passes through my mind. He's tuned into that, to every sensation that I have, every feeling that I have, and every emotion that I experience, every behavior I perform. Nothing gets past this attendant. And this attendant, though, has a special name. His name, he is a shame attendant, and his intent is not to help me. On the contrary, his intent is actually to infuse every thought that I have and every situation that I experience with a verbal and even nonverbal elements of judgment into my mind. He wants to insert at every moment of my life some kind of judgment, usually upon me. Now, the word attendant, that can be confusing because usually an attendant is someone who's there to help you, right? Well, and that's what this attendant wants. They want to look like a helper in my life. But the truth is, he's a monster. And he is, he is disguised merely as an attendant. He might use language that even sounds productive or protective, perhaps, or maybe even helpful. Could even just sound like common language, but his intent is to destroy me always. Now, we all have such an attendant who is waiting to advise us, who is waiting to uh, give us reflections and observations, and all of those are intended to destroy you as well. Instead of wanting to integrate our lives with other people, and instead of wanting to integrate our lives with God, he intends to disintegrate our relationship with God and to disintegrate our relationship with other people. Shame in my life, it greets me every morning as soon as I walk in my bathroom. Especially those really big mirrors that I have. They're giant. Whoever built this house was an idiot. (laughs) They are enormous, giant mirrors, and they cover absolutely every angle in my bathroom. It's horrible. And shame greets me every time I walk in with these huge mirrors, multiple angles. I see myself every morning as I walk in, and my attendant says this, Wow, Harley, you're a slob. True. It says, listen, Harley, do not let Vanessa see you like this. She's going to hate it, and she's going to regret being stuck with you. Getting out of the shower, my attendant 
there in the mirror says, oh my word, you are horrifically fat and disgusting. I'm telling you, they're giant mirrors. Simply walking through my bathroom. You think I'm playing, I'm not. Simply walking through my bathroom to get dressed. My shame attendant is already waiting and ready for me. As I get in the car and I head to work, my attendant says something like this, Harley, you're behind again. You're worthless. Won't you ever learn? And you know what? Everyone you work with too, everyone you work with has been listening to their own shame attendant since they got up as well and since they headed off to work. Your coworkers, your boss, your supervisor, if you're in school, the teachers, all the students, that person who's being emotionally abused, they're told this, that, hey, listen, you just brought that on yourself. That person who's been hurt physically or emotionally by another person. The shame attendant tells them, nobody wants you. You're you're damaged goods. Nobody wants you. Your spouse doesn't want you. Your parents don't want you. No friends want you. And nobody else does either. Every shame attendant is helping us to create our life story. And somehow the theme of that story is you are not enough. You don't measure up and you never will. By the time you have your first conversation in the morning with a real person other than your shame attendant, everyone around you has also already been berated by their own shame attendant. And everyone around you is also already emotionally worn out and tired. We're not even aware that we are in the process of writing our own life stories with the help of our shame attendant, but it's happening every single day, moment by moment. Something very interesting to me on this topic of shame. See, we tend to think of shame as just kind of like this idea, something like a a philosophical idea. But the truth is, here's what shame does to us. Shame actually elicits an actual response, which is called a neurophysiological response. Simply put, shame causes my brain and my body to respond to something that happens outside of me or something that happens in my mind. And I have a mental, emotional, spiritual, and physical reaction to that. So here's what that might look like. Let's say you look at me, you you shoot me a look or a glance, and it causes that shame attendant inside of me to take notice. And my shame attendant throws a little shade at me. And it activates a response in my body. So the first thing is I will probably turn away. Physically, I will turn away from you. And then I'm going to turn my eyes. My head is going to drop down. I'm going to avert my eyes. 
My shoulders are going to hunch over. My body is literally telling me to slow down. I become quiet. My heart rate slows. My blood pressure is lowered, not to a dangerous level. Just It just gets lower because my body is saying, you need to be less physically active right now. It is a literal physiological response to something external or internal that happens in my life. For me, think of it like this. When shame hits in my life, think of me like I I become like a cowering dog. Everything slows down. And all of that is accompanied by an emotional state. See, shame is so difficult to put words to. But if we were to try to put words to shame and this emotional state that we're feeling, we would say something like this, I feel bad. Like, like there's something wrong with me. I, I didn't just do something wrong. I am wrong. I, I didn't just do something bad. I am bad. I'm not enough. I'm not worth anything. I'm a loser. I am. And then you can fill in the blank. All of these words we're using to just try to make sense of, uh, of what's going on to try to help us come up with a story to describe the feelings that we're feeling and why we're feeling them. Now, for the next few moments, we're going to nerd out on some science, but please don't get up and run away. This is really interesting, if you'll let it be. And I hope you'll stay connected because this is amazing. Shame has an actual neurological and physiological impact on our lives. It's not just something we feel. Oh, it's much, much, much more. It's a neurobiological problem, this shame is. We have in our life this thing's called uh, neurons, almost called them neutrons. No, neurons. Neurons neurons are these basic basic, um, uh, information system that we have inside of our bodies. And what it does, it takes information and it sends it to all the different parts of our bodies. And these neurons this information pack that they send, it travels down rails of the neuron. And it's information, it sends information to our brain. It sends information to other neurons in our body. It sends information to other parts of our body. It is the information system. This is cool. There's different types of neurons. Shame uses a very specific type of neuron. It's described as unmyelinated. I don't have that on the screen. It's unmyelinated. That's the type of neuron it uses. Here's what that means. An unmyelinated neuron means this neuron doesn't have a nice, thick, protective coat of protein wrapped around it. This is legit, true thing. Uh, 
I like to think of these neurons as kind of cold-hearted because they're missing their coat, all right? Think of it that way. They're missing their protein coat, and it kind of makes them cold-hearted. For our purposes, we can kind of think of these neurons as maybe emotionally distant, cold, heartless neurons. Once these neurons fire and send information down that rail, like a roller coaster, it takes off. So these neurons fire, they send the information, carload of information down those rails. And once it fires, it's very difficult to get that packet of information stopped or slowed down or turned around or turned off. Once they fire, they go. Think of those rails as the interstate system for that neuron. And that's why these neurons with shame can show up everywhere and anywhere for many, many different reasons. But there's another type of neuron. It's myelinated, not unmyelinated. This one's myelinated neurons. These are different. They do have this thick coat of protein wrapped around the neuron. And so in a sense, for our understanding, think of these neurons as kind of warm and cozy and much more flexible. These neurons, the myelinated ones, the ones that have this coat of protein are very, very important to a system in our body called the social engagement system. Very important. You may have never heard of this, the social engagement system, but we all are born with this system. At birth, the social engagement system is very immature. And that system must be exercised in order for it to grow and to mature. And from a very young age, um, that happens usually by interacting with a parent and it grows from there. Healthy relationships um, function as this system grows. I'm going to bring the mic a little closer to my mouth. Hang on just a second. Sorry for the, the noise. So that's the social engagement system. Uh, and as you grow and interact with a parent and uh, trust is formed, it allows this system to grow and mature. These neurons, as they grow, they develop this thick, protective coat. And the more these neurons grow, the more they mature, the more they get exercised, the more they grow, the bigger that protective coat gets around that neuron. So here's how it works. Those myelinated neurons, the ones that are warmer and flexible, as opposed to the unmyelinated ones, they are the reason why we can experience something unpleasant. We can have some kind of unpleasant interaction with another person. You might even get mad at them. But we can turn those feelings 
that are traveling down those neurons, those rails, we can turn those feelings off. In other words, we can be mad at somebody. We can work it out and come to an understanding and our relationship can be okay again. We can turn off that feeling of being mad. It's, oh, we're okay. But here's how shame really stinks. Shame does not travel on that kind of neuron rail. Shame cannot switch tracks either. We all have it, shame. And it travels on these specific neuron tracks, always. And once that neuron of sh- that shame travels on is activated, once that car with the information of shame leaves the gate on those rails on that roller coaster ride, it is a long, long ride. And that information packet sticks around for a long time. That's why something can happen in your life, an event. Let me give you one of mine. I have so many. The event for you may be something that happened to you. It may be something that someone said or did to you. Or it may be something you did. And and one, I'm going to share something I did. Back in the early 2000s, when I was a youth minister, I called two students into my office. I had some information about something that had happened on the weekend. These students were in leadership within the student ministry, and I held the leaders to a very high standard. And in that meeting, I berated those students, and I said things to those students that years later I looked at and I said, oh my word, I cannot believe I said that to them. I can't believe I treated them that way. I can't believe I shamed them the way I did. I can't believe I did that. This was years later. And I went to those students, the only way I had access to, which was uh, email, I had no, actually Facebook. I had no connection with them any longer. This was years, years, years later. And I told them how wrong I was for how I handled that situation, how wrong my attitude was, my behavior was, my words were, how wrong it was. And I asked them to forgive me. And they said, it's it's done, it's over. We forgive you. Forgave you a long time ago. It's over. It's done. But that's why this whole shame thing and this specific neuron that it travels, why something can happen in your life, a life event that happened a long, long time ago, and you still can feel shame about that today. Even though you have gone to that person and you said, I hurt you, I'm so sorry, will you forgive me? And they gave you forgiveness and you believe them that they really did forgive you. And they tell you we're all good. And you believe them. 
Because it's true. And you feel better sincerely. But the next day you can wake up. And you can think about what you did or what you experienced. And you feel bad all over again. Maybe as bad as you felt the first time you felt the shame. No different. As if it had just happened right then. There is no change. It did not lessen. It did not become smaller. The shame is still there. And it's still raw. Because that neurophysiological response is sticking around. Why is that? Why? Because that's what those neurons do. They stick around with that same information packet. They stick around for a long, long time. And that single response to that single event can stick around for you and last for years. It can last a lifetime. And that's why I think of those neurons as cold and heartless. And they're running on these rails like a never-ending roller coaster. And do you know what that shame does the second time, third time, fourth time, the hundredth time around? It once again leads to disintegrated thinking in our brain. And that kind of thinking separates our feeling from our bodies. And as a result, I get separated from you. When I'm experiencing disintegrated emotional responses, I don't think very well. I don't think creatively. I don't want to move. I don't want you to come close to me. I don't want to come close to you. I don't want you to look at me because the moment you do, I'm going to sense all over again that information packet with all of that shame. That shame cues our emotional engagement system. And that, emotion, uh, that, uh, that social engagement system, it says to us, this relationship, this, this person perhaps, or this place, or this conversation, it is all unsafe. And that causes me to do one of four things. The first thing I might do is I might fight you. I might, as a response, because it's unsafe, aggressively go after you with words. Or I might fight something else as a diversion to get away from this. Or I might flight. I might turn away. I might get away and, and hide from you. The third response, I might freeze. My emotional system may become so overloaded that I just freeze and I can't do anything. Or I may camouflage. 
I may try to cover up so you don't see the shame and I don't let the shame out. Camouflage. The strange thing about all this, this happens at a very early age. We, be, we begin learning this whole system around the age of 15 months old, just over a year old. Long before we have learned how to communicate and talk. Long before we can take that look that somebody gives us as a baby, as a child. They look at us a certain way. And then we begin to have to understand what that look means. And we don't have words even yet to describe that. But by the time I'm 15 months old, I'm already having to figure all of this out. And I don't have language yet. By the time I'm 3 to 10 years old, I have been for years telling myself a story to try to explain everything that I have been taking in. To try to make sense of all of those feelings. And so sadly, so often, the story that we've been telling ourselves is this. It's not that we have done something bad. The story goes like this. I am bad. It's not that I've done something wrong. The story goes like this. There's something wrong, incurably wrong with me. And in an instant, we can go back to those very same feelings of shame that we had for an event that happened 10, 20, 30 years ago. As if we're experiencing that right now for the very first time. And that's why, in the blink of a thought, I can feel the very same pain of shame for something I did 24 years ago. And it crushes me the same way every time. And 24 years later, it still triggers my social engagement system saying, this is unsafe. And once again, my body responds like it had just happened, like it just happened. And my mind and my emotions experience that shame and that pain, and they all respond. And I turn my eyes from you. I turn my eyes away, my head down, my shoulders hunched over, my body slows down. I become quiet. My heart rate slows and my blood pressure lowers. And I become less physically active. You know what? Shame sucks. And once that shame car leaves the gate and heads down the rails, it is so difficult to stop that information packet. And what is happening physically and mentally is in lockstep with what is happening spiritually in our lives. Because shame has spiritual roots. 
God names shame for us very early in Scripture in Genesis chapter 2. One chapter in to creation, and God names shame. He gives it a name, verse 25 of chapter 2. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. Naked and unashamed. You know, God could have, he could have made sure that there were so many different things written there. So many other things could have applied. They were naked and happy. Naked and jolly and carefree and fearless. Sounds like a TV show. So many options. God could have chosen so many words to use, but God chose the word unashamed. And maybe, just maybe, it was to prepare us for what was coming for the rest of our lives. Because in addition to physical impacts, shame has a spiritual dimension. Even as we look at Scripture, you know, it's not uncommon to see shame closely related with sin, right? We see that all through Scripture. We also see forgiveness closely related to shame going away throughout Scripture. Think with me for a moment that shame is like an emotional costume that sin makes us put on. Let's see this played out in these early passages of Genesis. We visit the passage we're getting ready to read to you. We visit this passage two or three times a year in some way. And here we are again, Genesis 3. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day, he asked the woman. Pardon me. One day, he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the fruit of any of the trees in the garden? Verse 2, oh, oh, of course we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden. The woman said, it's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden. That's what we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it or you will die. Verse 4, you won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows. He knows your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Now we're told in this passage that Adam is near, but he's not participating in the conversation. It's just Eve and the evil one. And really, that's what shame does. Shame isolates. When I'm alone in my head, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, that's when shame is just banging around there, taking control of me when I'm alone in my head. 
But when I'm in a conversation with people who love me and people who care about me, shame doesn't have as much power as it does when I'm captivated in my own mind, just my shame attendant and myself. Just me and shame. It appears that this conversation with the evil one is exactly what the evil one's trying to do here, is to isolate Eve like I do with my own thoughts. It's like he's trying to cut that relationship, to disintegrate that relationship between her and God. Because the evil one doesn't say, hey, Eve, you know, hey, listen, I, I don't think you're going to die. Come on, Eve, let, let's go talk to God about it. Let's get everybody involved in this conversation. Where's Adam? Let's get Adam and let's get God and let's all come together because I, I don't really think you're understanding what God was saying. No. Instead, he wants to isolate her. He wants to break her away from Adam and break her away from God. He wants to get her thinking. You know, Eve... God doesn't really think you're all that important, Eve. He doesn't want to share with you all the good stuff that he has. And then the evil one leaves her alone to draw her own conclusions about who God is and who she is. And he now allows her with his input to rewrite her story. You see, shame is so subtle. Shame is so quiet. It loves lurking in the shadows. It does not want the attention. And if we were any good at all about getting rid of shame, we wouldn't we would have done that long, long ago. We would have gotten rid of it, but we're not any good at it. Because it hammers home this idea that we are not enough, and we will never be enough, and we will never be able to do anything about it. Shame is so subtle, and it is so secret. And all of those thoughts are quietly, privately banging around in my head. I can't tell you about it. I, I mean, I wish I could. Why can't I tell you about it? Because if I admit to you, because after all, I'm supposed to be following Jesus, right? If I admit to you, other people who are on this journey of following Jesus, if I admit to you, my shame, then it would bring me even more shame to have to admit that to you. So shame keeps me isolated day after day, and then for weeks, week after week, and then without even realizing it, for years, it keeps me isolated from you. While all the time, Shame is getting more and more powerful 
in those secret places. And I'm getting more and more isolated. And then for Eve, everything changed. For Adam, everything changed. And for you and for me, everything changed. Verse 6, the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and that its fruit looked delicious. She wanted the wisdom that it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and she ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. And at that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame. Shame. Shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Instantly. They were naked and ashamed. Instantly. And what was their first response to being naked and ashamed? To clothe themselves somehow, some way. To camouflage themselves. And then they went and hid. And from there... The story advances to the first murder and then to the Tower of Babel where sin grows and it spreads and it takes over the entire earth. Forcing the entire inhabitants of the earth to put on the costume of shame because of all of that sin. At that moment, there was tragedy and crisis and there was no hope the moment Adam and Eve sinned. In that moment, there was separation. They were integrated with each other and with God, and now they were disintegrated between themselves and also between them and God. And it left them naked and ashamed. But into that scene, we do find hope because God came walking. But why? Why did God come walking? To rub their noses in it? I told you, you idiots. No. Here's why. Verse 8. When the cool of the evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, Adam, where are you? Don't miss this. God came walking. Adam and Eve did what any of us would have done. They did exactly what their shame attendant wanted. They responded by hiding in that shame. 
they first hid themselves from each other. They put on those silly leaves and they camouflaged themselves from each other. They hid their shame from each other. That was from integration to disintegrated relationship. And then they did what their shame attendant wanted even more. They hid from God. They were sure, they were convinced that the God who created them, the God who had talked with them, who was integrated with them, connected with them, they were convinced that this God would abandon them because of what they had done. If God really, really knew me, the way I know me. If God could see me the way I see me, there is no way he would want to be close to me. Does that sound familiar? But God comes walking and he comes to reconnect. He asked Adam, where are you? Not because God needed the information. God knows everything. He didn't need that. God wanted to reconnect. It's a question in the first step of reconnection, just answer me, Adam, where, where are you? I know where you are, but where are you? And Adam replied, verse 10, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. Can you just see his eyes going down and his shoulders hunching over? His eyes diverted away from God, not wanting to be close. I heard you in the garden, and I was ashamed. God, because uh, I'm ashamed. If you really were going to see me the way I saw myself in that moment, God, you would abandon me and leave me, and I would deserve it. I would deserve you to leave me, God. What does God do next? Does he say, yeah, well, right, you know what you did? No. He asked another question. Verse 11, he said, who told you you were naked? Now, God doesn't need the information. God already knows. It is a question of reconnection. Adam, talk with me. Come out of hiding, Adam. A question of reconnection. Who told you you were naked? And then, and only then, after the reconnection has begun, does he even mention what happened? Have you eaten from the tree? whose fruit I commanded you to not eat. 
and they're still in their shame. And their response is in shame now. And their response, the shame is going to cause them to fight. This is to blame. Interestingly, for us, usually, we don't blame some distant person for why we do what we do. For the shame that we have, we don't blame. We, most often, we blame the person who's the closest to us emotionally in our lives, closest to our hearts. And we see that here. That's what happens here. Verse 12, the man replied, it's that woman you gave me. She gave me the fruit and I ate it. Lord God looked at the woman. What have you done? She said, the serpent. He deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. So they're still hiding. They're still camouflaged. You know, I've heard these verses taught since I was little and my parents took me to church. And I've read and studied how sin in that moment, how it, had, how it entered the world. Most of us, many of us can almost recite this story. We've heard it so many times. We, as I said, we teach it two or three times a year here. But so often we overlook the most important part, I believe, one of the most important parts of the story. And here it is in this phrase, don't miss it. God came looking for us. He did not abandon us. He didn't abandon Adam and Eve in their shame. He came looking for us. And he came to reconnect. Adam and Eve experienced the full measure of what shame does to us. It isolates, it separates, and then it cycles. In that isolation and separation, it cycles over and over, and it grows, and it grows, and they experience that. But they also experienced God. Because he came looking for them. And my friends, he came looking for us. Shame was hiding in the background, in the shadows, and it left them naked and ashamed. You see, shame doesn't want credit for destroying lives. Shame could not care less who gets the credit. Shame is satisfied staying in the shadows, secretly destroying you. It is happy to hide in the shadows of your mind and just destroy. But the point of today is that God 
came looking for us. And God took that God light. He turned it on and he aimed it into the shadows. And he said, shame, I'm not going to let you hide here and destroy. And he called it out. He called shame out of the shadows and he asked Adam and he asked Eve to come out of hiding and be vulnerable because that's what they were. Vulnerable. He said, come out of hiding. Adam, Eve, and you and me come out of hiding. Return to that state of emotional vulnerability, emotional nakedness with God. So that he can help return us to a state of connectedness with him. I want you to know, shame is a liar. And shame has convinced us that God will abandon us. And I want you to know today, as we begin this series, this one thing, God came looking for us. And he called Adam and Eve out of hiding. And he took off their efforts to cover up their shame. He removed those leaves. And God began the process of, in his way, in that moment, taking care of their shame. He did that himself. Verse 21, and the Lord God made clothing from animal skins. For Adam and his wife. I wish I could talk more about that. I can't. I don't have time. This all comes down to this today. What are we going to do with this today? Here's what I suggest as we begin this series. We've got three more weeks, and every week is so important and has so much potential to make a change in your life. But here's where we're ending this week right now. So today, I'm inviting you in this one song we're going to sing. Let's worship this God who came looking for us. Even in the midst of our shame, let's worship this God who came looking for Adam and Eve, and he came looking for us too. Why do we worship this God? We worship this God because he came looking for us. And for the next few moments, I'm inviting you through the lyrics of this song 
Let's worship together this God who came looking for us. And then beyond this song, here's where this really gets bigger. Over the course of this week, let's worship this God who came looking for us. And here's how we worship him throughout the week. Here's how. We worship God through everything we say, every sentence that comes out of our mouth is either worship to ourselves or someone else, or it's worship to God ultimately with what we say. Let's worship God this week with every decision we make. God, regardless of what I feel, I want this decision to glorify you. Let's worship God with everything we say, every decision we make. Let's worship God through every person with whom you are kind this week. Through whom every person this week you are patient. May you be able to look at Jesus and say, Jesus, I love you. I adore you, but don't let me just say it. Let me prove it to you by the decisions I make and by the way I live this week. Because God, you did not abandon me. You came looking for me. Let's pray. God, you came looking for them. Adam and Eve, and you came asking. You came asking them, will you come out of hiding? And God, you began to cover their shame temporarily. But with looking forward to the day that you would cover their shame permanently. And God, now we stand this side of that cross where you covered our shame. And may we worship you because of it. And in these words we sing and the decisions we make this week and the words we say this week, may they all declare that you are a good good God, and I worship you.